going to be in Revelation this morning, so if you got a Bible or device, encourage you guys to turn there or swipe there. Thus far in Revelation, what we have seen so far is that, I mean, this is, this is a crazy book. It's a crazy book with some really vivid images, and there are pictures being uh, constructed for us that are just beyond us a lot of times. And what it pushes us into is to understand more and more that this book is filled with symbolism. That is not, it is not a literal book, but we've got to put on our symbolic hats and try and understand it from that perspective. But going back to the very first week when we introduced this book, uh, as Peyton was just praying, this book is intended to reveal Jesus. That is the intention of the book, to point us to Jesus, to center us on him. This book is a book that is all about Jesus. So if we're not getting to him, then we're not reading the book correctly. But another thing that we talked about in the first week of this series as well is that it says near the beginning of Revelation that blessed are those who keep these words. And so at times it can be really hard to understand how do we keep these words? They're just these magnificent visions. What does it mean to keep these words? And really what it means for us to keep these words is to believe in the one that this book is revealing. So it's a call to, to fix our eyes on Jesus and to believe in him in various ways that he is being presented to us. This morning we get a very distinct idea about Jesus. So we're looking at the 144,000. If you grew up in the church, you maybe have a, an understanding of what this is about. And if you don't, then hopefully there'll be a little more clarity uh, as we go through these verses this morning. So let me read uh, the, the passage that we're looking at. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. You click that. Thanks. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, hearing this, you might think, man, this is going to be a really short sermon. Uh, we've got like five minutes here, right? Maybe a little math lesson, and then we're, we're out of here. But uh, there's a little bit, actually a lot bit more in these verses that we're going to mine out. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into it. God, thanks so much for 
these eight verses in Revelation 7, I pray that you would help us understand them. I pray that it would help us understand the whole of the book of Revelation in greater ways. So please have your way in our hearts in this time. I pray our hearts would be sensitive to you, all the distractions, the things running through our minds, what's happening later in this day, the busyness of our lives, the weightiness of things going on in our lives. God, I pray that you'll help us to be able to pierce through all of that and to hear what you want us to hear, to see Jesus for who he is. And I pray that our faith in him would be built in these moments together. In your name I pray. Amen. At times when we read through Revelation, I think it can feel a bit disjointed. So at the end of chapter six, and we're going to read this in just a moment, we're just hearing these harsh, this harsh vision of God's judgment. And then it's jumping into this 100, this 144,000. And this disjointed part of Revelation is actually really normal. So we go from these judgment proclamations to then songs being sung about the greatness of God. And then we go back into these judgment proclamations and it just goes back and forth throughout this book. And so it's really normal, but it's a way in which as we look at the structure of the book, it's a way in which we're reminded as we walk in this world that is filled with spiritual plagues and hardship and where the effects of sin are devastatingly rampant, that God has not forgotten us. He has not forgotten us. There are tons of reasons. No matter what we're walking through, there are tons of reasons for us to be filled with hope. And so there's this call for us to persevere, to persevere in faith. And all of this then speaks to why it's not surprising to understand the context surrounding the introduction of these 144,000 people. At the end of chapter 6, we were given the judgment associated with the removal of the sixth seal off the scroll. So it said in Revelation 6, there was a great earthquake, darkness, the sky vanished like a scroll, being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its, from its place. So it's detailing the horror that is being experienced by all people. But then it goes on and it, it says, especially the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. So these people who at the snap of a finger could say, this is what I want done. They could tell people to go do these things are now calling for the mountains to fall on them because they're seeing the wrath of God being brought forth by Jesus. And in chapter six, verse 17, so this is the very end of chapter six. It says, the great day of wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? Who can withstand the wrath of God? Who will make it through these terrible judgments? And at this point, then John pivots. And he moves us into this next vision that we're looking at this morning, which is the 144,000. So the 144,000 is the answer to the question that is posed at the end of chapter six, who can stand? And this is who can stand. 
But chapter 7 starts with this description of four angels holding back the four winds and instruction being given to not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Now, this is quite interesting given what we've just read in the sixth seal with the earthquakes and the darkness and the removal of mountains and islands and the terror that is associated with that sixth seal. Now, right after that, we're given this pause, this reprieve. Throughout Revelation, we're confronted with aspects of delay or suspense. And so the holding back of winds speaks to the patience of God. This is God's patience being invoked in this world. Now, when we think of God's patience, it tends to strike us in a couple of different ways. On one hand, we love the patience of God. We know that in our heart of hearts, we are in deep need of God's patience. We see our ongoing struggle. When we look at God and we see his love towards us, and we look at our own lives and our love towards other people or towards God himself, we can see our struggle to reciprocate God's love, the same love that he puts towards us. Many days, we are not captivated by grace. We think grace is something that we deserve because of these things that we have done. And really, when we think about grace in that way, we're thinking about the antithesis of grace. Grace is never something that we deserve, never something that we earn. It is an undeserved gift. And many times we are not captivated by grace. We also can look out at loved ones, whether family or friends, and we can see how many of them maybe hate Jesus or they reject Jesus. God's patience benefits us and our loved ones immensely. But there are other times when we struggle with God's patience. And this can have both good or bad ramifications. Back, uh, or just previously in the fifth seal, we read of followers of Jesus who were slain because of their faith in Jesus. And, and the picture that we get of them is they are crying out for justice, asking God, how much longer until you will avenge our blood, our blood that was shed because we were holding fast to Jesus? When will you come and exact judgment for that? Or, or we can just look around this world and we see the carnage that is being caused by sin. These are legitimate struggles with God's patience. We just want it all to end. And those of us who maybe have gone through really immense or deep valleys of suffering, we maybe feel this even more. We want this suffering to end. Yet there are other times when God's patience angers us. We think of really hard things that we've gone through in life, or may maybe when someone hurts us in a really deep way, we want revenge. We want God's patience to have hit its end and for him to act and to act fully and to act quickly. We feel this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, should turn towards Jesus. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient, and this is a beautiful reality, but it's a reality that also will end. When God's patience reaches its completion, his judgment will be swift, and his judgment will be total, and it will be unmistakable. We learn here that the delay in, in Revelation 7, we learn that the, the delay in judgment is because of God's desire to seal his servants, okay? He's going to seal his servants, and not until the full number are sealed that his judgment will come. And we're going to talk more about the seal of God when we talk about the mark of the beast later on in Revelation. But I just want to note this disparity between the two. So Revelation 7, 3 we're reading in the verses we're looking at today that Christians are sealed. It says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on the, their foreheads. And then in Revelation 14, it talks about non-Christians and how they are marked. So these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So that there's intended to be a distinct difference between someone who is sealed and someone who is marked. And so for the purposes of this morning, I just want you to think on that reality, but there is a more permanent reality to something that is sealed than to something that is merely just marked. So John then writes, he says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So I want to hone in on the number 144,000 and talk about some of the interesting aspects, at least I think they're interesting aspects, related to this number. So let's try and clear up a little bit of this number, 144,000. So if, if you have history in the church, uh, you maybe have some confusion regarding this number. What does it actually mean? Does this mean only 144,000 people will be saved? And there's a group of people called the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that this is the number of people who will be going to heaven. If so, if, if that were to be true, don't you think that would discourage us from telling other people about Jesus? Like, like, if I'm going to tell someone else about Jesus, aren't I then decreasing my chances that I might be in those 144,000? And so even just on a really practical level, it, it doesn't make sense with the rest of the Bible. Or, or is this only Jewish people, since it talks about the tribes, and this is referring then to Old Testament Israel tribes. So let's try and sort some of this out. First of all, is this number literal? Is this number literal? And the short answer to this is no. It is not a literal number. But the longer answer for us is that we are in the midst of a book that is filled with symbolism. 
We've talked about this over and over. Much of what we've read already in the book of Revelation already has not conveyed literal images to us, but is taking descriptions of images that we can envision and seek to describe as it seeks to describe spiritual realities for us. So physical descriptions that are then trying to describe these spiritual realities that are ongoing all around us right now. So the number is not literal, but there is significant meaning in the usage of this number here in Revelation. Additionally, so the verse right after that we've read, so we read through chapter 7, verse 8, the very next verse is going to help us understand that this is not just talking about a literal number as well it says so so context says this is not a literal number it says in revelation 7 9 after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb so it's talking about this number that no one can number. We're not talking merely about 144,000, but we're talking about people from every nation, tribe, language that no one is able to number. So these are not contradictory statements, but complementary statements that help us to understand God and his ways, the ways that he's walking out here on earth. Also, the tribes, and we're going to get into this a bit more, but the tribes, how they're ordered, what's going on, the, the inclusion of certain tribes and not others helps to speak to this fact that we are talking about a symbolic reality here, not a literal one. Okay, so if it is not literal, then why is there a specific number being given? So first of all, it conveys the idea that God is aware of the specific number, even though the number is really large. Okay, so now we're not going to sit down at any time and count out 144,000. Like at Halloween, a kid will sit down and they will count out 144 pieces of candy, right? But, but no kid would sit down and count out 144,000 pieces of candy. So it's a very large number. We're not going to do this, but, but this is not how God is. Even though it's a large number, the picture we get of God in the Bible is he is the one who knows when one sheep is missing. He is the one who knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows each life that is sealed by him. So this speaks to the fact that God knows and cares for all who are saved. So part of the intention here is God is desiring to comfort us, even in this number of 144,000, which is really ironic, because what I heard many times growing up, what I've heard from many other people is this 144,000 actually causes fear and anxiety for many people. But the exact opposite would be God's intention. His intention is to comfort by displaying this reality of who he is. He knows those who are his own. 
Secondly, the usage of numbering in this way is utilized in the Old Testament. So every time the tribes of Israel are numbered in a similar, similar way is for a census. And, and every time that they are being counted in a census is because they are preparing to go to war. They are counting up the military force of the nation. As we read in Revelation, then we're reminded that we are in a harsh spiritual war. Blood is being shed spiritually speaking lives are being taken sin is ravaging the lives of many people and as followers of jesus we are called to fight with faith to trust in the blood of jesus to storm the gates of hell with the best news this world has ever heard and so this idea that we are in a war is all over revelation it is happening all around us Lastly, this specific number is also communicating completeness in a way that correlates to the whole of the Bible. So we've talked previously in the book of Revelation how the number seven speaks to the idea of completion. But we also get this, and especially as it pertains to people, the number, of, the number 12 communicates completion as well. There were 12 tribes in Israel. And so Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, he had sons who were the forerunners of the 12 tribes or the people groups of Israel. There were also 12 disciples that Jesus selected to be his closest friends and partners in ministry. So there's great, when we look at the number 12, and so we think, Number 12 and then times 12,000 is, is how you get to 144,000. There are numerous symbolic reasons for the usage of 144,000. And this is all heightened then in a symbolic sense as we get into the list of tribes. Now, when we read the tribes, many of you, and I would say the average reader, probably reads those or actually doesn't even read them, just skips over them because we think that is just a monotonous list that means nothing. It's just saying the same thing over and over with a different name. But this list is actually intended to grab our attention. So if you're to go back to the Old Testament and look at lists of the tribes, you would never see a list that looks like this list we're looking at in Revelation. So I want to try and draw out some of the differences and explain the significance of what's going on in this list of tribes here. So first off, we must note the order of the tribes. So you'll see on this slide that's up here, you can see the sons listed in order of Revelation, okay? But, I, but I've added here a birth order number. So Judah is listed first, but he was actually number four. Reuben is listed second here, but he was actually the firstborn. Uh, and so he would always be listed first in any of the uh, Old Testament listings, uh, listing of tribes there. So, so first of all, we, we can see it just from the, the order that we see here. Now, this is also a further demonstration that the number 144,000 is not to be read literally. There's more going on here than just listing numbers and the idea that there's just 12,000 in, in each tribe as well. Like there's got to be like more or less in one of them, right? If we're talking literally. So every part of this is just speaking, screaming symbolism here. So 
The first son of Jacob listed here is Judah, not Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. And in the ancient world, the birthright, the firstborn, was a significant benefit. And so this would typically cause Reuben to be listed first, which is what we see in the Old Testament. So why change this list? Why, why switch things up in a different order? Well, it pertains to who is listed first in this list in Revelation. And here we find Judah listed first. When we understand the genealogical significance of Judah's line, and I'm not talking about the impressiveness of Judah himself, because if you look at Judah's life, he is not an impressive dude. He's got a messy life for sure, but it's the genealogical significance that runs through Judah's line, and when we understand that, we will understand why he is listed first here. Judah's line is the line of Jesus. Jesus is the true son of God. He is the firstborn, the beginning. We read in Revelation 5, 5, that he is the lion of Judah. Jesus is king. Now, when we think about our own lives and the way things might be ordered, the way things might transpire in our own lives, we, we might think, man, if I was in charge, I would not do things this way. When we would look at the way God orders somebody's life, the way in which he does things in this world, he's oftentimes doing things in ways that we would not expect. But what's clear is Jesus is the point. We might not always like things that we walk through in our lives, but the intention in all of life is that we would understand Jesus is the point. He's the one who's out in front of us. He's the one that we are called to follow. And so he must always come first for us. So that's the reason why Judah is listed first in this list. Secondly, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali were all born of concubines or prostitutes, which means they were outsiders. They were not part of God's covenant people. And this demonstrates how non-Jews or uh, how non-Jews or outsiders are welcomed in and included in God's covenant family. This is the picture we see of Jesus in Luke chapter 7, when a woman who is a prostitute comes to Jesus and she washes his feet with her tears. She kisses his feet. She anoints Jesus. Now, Jesus, with, with all the religious folk who are at, at that moment and part of that experience, they start to condemn Jesus because he's not condemning this sinful woman. Now, Jesus acknowledges that this woman in that moment, she has, not in that moment she's sinning greatly, but in her life she has sinned greatly. But it is because of her faith in Jesus that he forgives her sin and announces salvation for her. And in this, we're given a picture of Jesus being a savior who comes for spiritual prostitutes like us. People who have used and abused our lives, given ourselves over to sin in various ways. Jesus comes for people 
just like us and counts them as his own through his willing sacrifice. And we see this in the listing. So rather than these tribes being listed 8, 9, and 10, what we see is these tribes are even moved up 3, 4, and 5, right? So even in that reordering, we see some of the symbolism of people who are outsiders being welcomed in in a significant way. Lastly, we note that Manasseh is not Jacob's son, but he is actually Jacob's grandson. And he is included here in this list in place of one of Jacob's sons named Dan. Now, it's likely that Dan is excluded from this list because of his notoriety in leading Israel into idolatrous apostasy. In numerous instances in the Old Testament, we find the people of Dan being renowned for their idol worship. So rather than worshiping the one true God, they're raising up fashioning idols that they can worship. And so as we're reading this in Revelation, it's a stark reminder of something that we'll read at other points in Revelation, that those who do not repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, forsaking all else, will not be counted among God's people. They will be excluded if they do not repent. So when we look at the 144,000, when we look at the list of these 12 tribes here, what John is seeing in the 144,000 is a symbolic portrayal of true spiritual Israel, what we know today as Jesus' church. So John is taking here in Revelation, he's taking Old Testament imagery. He's intensifying it. He's spiritualizing it, and he's envisioning it in connection with Jesus and his church today. So a couple of points of gospel application for us here as we wind things down. First of all, gospel truth is intended to both comfort us and to compel us. So if we look at some of the gospel truth that's found in these verses, for those who are Christians, it's saying, you are known. You are known. You are numbered. You are sealed. You are saved. You and your loved ones are shown patience by God. You are fought for. This all-powerful God loves and cares for you in ways that you cannot imagine. Don't take this for granted. Don't take God's love, his sealing of you for granted. Remind yourself often of these truths. Let them be a comfort to you. This is what God says about you. But don't let it end there. We're not comforted just so we're comforted. We're comforted so that we can be a comfort to other people as well. And that's the compelling piece. We're comforted so that we then are freed up. to com- So we're compelled to go after other people, to share this comfort with others as well. So they might be comforted in similar or maybe even in greater ways as we are. So gospel truth is intended to comfort and compel us. And then secondly, also, 
There's this call to fight with the gospel. We are engaged in a war. Whether we are oblivious to this or not, whether we are sleeping through the artillery rounds going off all around us or not, it's happening. We are in a war, a brutal, blood-stained war. The word and the only word that allows us to slay sin, to resist the devil, and to persevere in faith is the gospel. And the way by which we fight is believing in that good news. That is how we fight the fight of faith. Remind yourself often of how Jesus has fought for you. He fought for you all the way to the point of death.